in Kansas anymore. Are you ready? Now I'm just getting warmed up. This task was appointed to you. I said I want the truth! I say we take off and nuke the entire site from Dodge Ed. Hello and welcome back to the BBFC podcast. I'm Megan and today at the BBFC we are commemorating the 75th anniversary of VE Day, which marked the Allies' acceptance of Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender of its armed forces on the 8th of May 1945. Today I'm joined by Chris from our compliance department. Welcome back to the podcast. That's great to be back. In this podcast, we'll be looking back at the relationship between the government and the BBFC during World War II and how we classify war films today. So, Chris, why do you think films about World War II have remained so popular over the years? I think World War II is still such a monumental event in world history uh, and one that is still a relatively recent history in which, you know, for some people, our parents or grandparents will have experienced or played some part in. So I think it, it serves as a connection to our past and like all wars, it also heightens a lot of human experience and emotion, whether it's you know, bravery or courage or you know, quite often the suffering of people as well. So for filmmakers, like these themes, the moral conflicts, you know, the emotions, and also just like the scale of the war and the conflict, especially in the case of World War II, like, makes it like really rich ground for exploration. Mm, and there's so many stories to be told as well. Like it, it encompassed so many different countries and experiences. War films played a substantial role in maintaining morale through the war. But did the government place any restrictions on what content people could watch during their time? Uh, yeah, so just to kind of uh, provide a little bit of context, uh, when the UK declared war on September 3rd, 1939, uh, one of the first things the government did was to close all the cinemas and theatres out of uh, fear of loss of life if people gathered together. Uh, so in some ways it's, it's kind of similar to what's happening now. Um, but when uh, you know, there weren't any immediate attacks, uh, cinemas start to reopen, usually by, you know, by around kind of October time. Um, and the government knew, especially after World War One, that the cinema was an immensely important tool for public morale and for propaganda. And surveys had even shown that for many people, especially working classes, uh, cinema is one of the key methods that they gathered news from. You know, for some people, it's even more so than the newspapers. Uh, so the uh, Ministry of Information sought to use cinema to help provide entertainment and promote the war effort, both at home and abroad. Uh, and to some extent, it was easier for the uh, Ministry of Information, or MOI, to govern film production in the UK during World War II, as fewer films were being produced, uh, partly because studio space was being used to store different materials. Uh, the government also controlled access to film stock. Uh, and many people who worked in the film industry had been called up to fight. This also meant there was a, a greater emphasis on quality rather than quantity of films. And through groups like the Ideas Committee, which was uh, where the MOI would meet with film industry figures like uh, Michael Powell of Powell and Pressburger or Michael Balkan uh, of Ealing Studios, and they would discuss acceptable topics for films. And so this kind of acted as a, a pre-censorship before anything became kind of formal and uh, actually shot. And the MOI was able to steer the film industry into producing content that you know, supported the prop- their propaganda needs. And during World War II, Britain actually enjoyed a lot of cr- uh, critical and box office success with its output. And over the course of the war, weekly cinema attendance actually rose uh, from roughly 19 million uh, per week in 1939 uh, to over 30 million by 1945. 
Wow, that's a massive increase. Over that time, like, um, you know, because of the costs and various things, uh, ticket prices were going up. But even despite that, these were rising, people were still getting out to the cinemas. It was a way of kind of getting together, improving morale, and and people just enjoyed the experience as well. So, like, despite there being rations during the wartime and people having less kind of money, they were still investing in cinema. Yeah, I think it was just something that brought people together and, and... yeah, although there were some films that obviously like depicting the war, there were other things that acted more as entertainment and escape. So it was a way of just kind of getting out of some of the, you know, the doldrums and the experience. Definitely. So, yeah. Uh, and you know, the MOI, like it had its own standards and sensors, but by and large, these corresponded to the standards that were in use at the BBFC at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. So the BBFC was still largely operating off TP O'Connor's grounds for deletion, which had originated through World War One in 1916. And these essentially barred the depiction of you know, graphic war violence, controversial politics. There's a couple of like, you know, great quotes from the phrasing and things from these actual grounds where they wouldn't allow scenes or incidents calculated to afford information to the enemy, incidents <laughs> having a tendency to disparage our allies, scenes holding the king's uniform up to contempt or ridicule, wow. and the exploitation of tragic incidents of the war. So a lot of those things like, you know, corresponded to you know, the propaganda efforts of the MOI. Uh, but also during World War II, like in terms of the BBSC, there was a certain like relaxation of certain areas. Mm. Uh, so a lot of our outlook that you know, didn't correspond directly with the MOI was more to do with like moral grounds. Right. Uh, so things to do with uh, language, depictions of you know, other countries. Um, and also like the betrayal of social issues. But over the course of the war, like some of those things would be re- uh, relaxed, you know, to support the war effort. It's interesting because when you talk about the grounds for deletion, you mentioned controversial politics. But I would presume that during wartime, a lot of content would be more political. So something that like quite a lot of ac- academics have talked about in that uh, during World War II, there was a kind of gradual shift away from um censorship and like you know with the bbfc and things as well which was kind of enforcing the status quo whereas because of during like during the war effort working classes were so important to that and you know they formed like the you know the vast majority of our you know fighting personnel and medical corps and so on uh, and so much relied on them that there was a slight shift towards kind of more left-wing politics through the films during the war and some academics have kind of theorized that that was something that contributed to the you know, instigation of the Labour government after the war. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, and what other issues were raised in film during the wartime? Um, so like, language was one that came up in kind of uh, portrayals of military personnel. One quite famous example is The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, uh, mm-hmm. which is a Paolo Pressburger film, which uh, Winston Churchill actually took against because the film kind of portrays this quite old-fashioned officer and gentleman figure um, over a number of decades, including kind of his role in World War One, and over the course of the film, he comes to realise as it's kind of moving towards you know the World War Two era that his style of warfare and his values are being left behind, uh, and the times are changing. And I think maybe because you know Churchill had been through that era himself, maybe he kind of felt it slightly more personal, and uh, you know maybe he was outdated as well. So he had tried to get the film banned, but. Again, the uh, the MOI intervened. They were in, in you know in favour of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the BBFC didn't see any issues with it. Um, there was a use of bloody, which terms like bloody and bastard had typically not been allowed uh, prior to the war. But during wartime, they, uh, there's there's some relaxation of language, uh, especially weirdly when it was used in relation to Germans. Of course. <laughs> So in this case, like Colonel Blimp was passed out you and it went on to become a huge critical and commercial success. 
um, of one of the most like acclaimed films of uh, 1943, I think it was. I think it's interesting um, for a, a war film to be classified U. Was there any violence in it? No, so that was actually quite a you know restrained film. Um, it's more to do with the, you know, the drama and the shifting of times, but other films did depict more uh, conflict. So there's one film called uh, Next of Kin, which is a Ealing Studios production, and it was trying to kind of uh, highlight the potential devastating effect that you know spies could have, and uh, you know the kind of uh, careless talk costs lives, that kind of thinking. And the climax of the film is a British raid on German German coastal defences in France which was compromised as a result of uh, spies and some of these activities. And it results in quite heavy losses. And for the time, the kind of the battle sequences were quite realistic. And, you know, some of viewers kind of left quite distraught by it. So there was a kind of certain amount of uh, concern about that. The editor of the film even described it as simply too grim, too effective, too frightening. But despite that, the film was passed a... Uh, but obviously that was you know the slightly more adult category because of because of the detail of the violence right so there were some that were perhaps a bit more violent at the time yeah wow interesting and after this period how did films about world war ii change did they become more violent or do you think they were more accurate in their depiction uh a bit of both really so it's quite an interesting sort of area to look at because it kind of really highlights the kind of the relationship between society and film and the way that kind of both influences each other. So because of censorship and the limitations of what could be shown during wartime, a lot of the war films made, like even into the 50s, were relatively restrained and didn't show an awful lot in terms of the grim realities. Um, But as we kind of get into the 60s, there's the kind of the growth of the youth movement, especially in America. And, you know, cinema started to change, censorship started to be relaxed. And also we got the growth of the Vietnam War. And compared to World War II, where there was such heavy censorship of you know, all the material that was coming out in newspapers and newsreels, the kind of the growth of TV, the availability of like smaller cameras, which enabled filmmakers and journalists to film things on site and not rely on governments to provide them with information to put into newsreels. And also just like the general kind of freedom of the press they would show images from Vietnam which were far more graphic than anything that had really been shown in films before that. And then films of the time then started to reflect that growing violence, including like in wartime contexts. And although films in the 60s were slightly kind of reserved about approaching Vietnam directly, there's a John Wayne film called The Green Berets, but that was like one of the very few films to depict Vietnam. Uh, We started to get some of this heightened violence in World War II films, including some which kind of acted almost like as, as allegories for Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, so a, a Michael Caine film called Play Dirty um, or the Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson film, The Dirty Dozen, uh, which was classified X in 1967. And that kind of really kind of, you know, was much more violent than previous war films. It uh, brought in a lot more kind of moral ambiguity and gray areas as to, you know, what was right and wrong in wartime. Yeah. Um, and this kind of like progressed over, over the 70s until in the late 70s and then into the 1980s, that's when we got our first like, true wave of vietnam war films so you know starting with uh, apocalypse now deer hunter and going on to platoon full metal jacket hamburger hill and across these films it really started to to bring ever more graphic and violent depictions of warfare and the real kind of brutality and it lost some of the kind of the moral grounds that some earlier films you know were starting to have as well and then once we got into the 1990s there's a revival in kind of historical epics in general you know we think of dances with wolves titanic braveheart those kind of films and then it was also the 50th anniversary of world war ii 
Right. So it was a lot of kind of media attention, documentaries, news coverage, special events, all this kind of stuff kind of commemorating World War II. So the two kind of things kind of work together and, you know, there's a growth of World War II films. Um, you know, one of the most you know, standout examples is Saving Private Ryan, which then kind of brought in a lot more of this graphic violence, which hadn't really been seen before. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Saving Private Ryan as I think a lot of people mark it as a film that really changed the way films depicted World War II. So the story is about a group of US soldiers who go behind enemy lines um, to retrieve a paratrooper whose brothers have been killed in action. And we rated the film 15 in 1998. Can you tell me about what the category defining issues were that led to the 15 certification? Sure. So um, and very simply, the film also contains like strong language, which you know, would have taken up to 15 anyway. But the, the real core thing in the case of Saving Private Ryan is the kind of the graphic war violence. And as I say, like coming off the back of some of these Vietnam films, it kind of it took that even further. And you know, no, nowhere is this more evident than in the film's kind of big opening sequence, which is a recreation of the, uh, the Omaha Beach landings as part of uh, D-Day. How do we kind of fit that violence into the 15 category? Sure. So Same Private Ryan was classified before our current uh, system of public consultation and re revising our guidelines. But the thinking and theories behind the 15 for the film is basically the same as what we apply now. And that's at 15, we can allow strong violence, strong body violence. Um, we can allow gory images, but it's unlikely that we're going to accept the strongest gory images or a dwelling on the infliction of pain and injury. And, you know, people who have seen Same Private Ryan know that, you know, maybe it's pushing pushing some of those parameters, um, you know, some of the gory images, literally the blood and guts of warfare and things are strong and quite impactful. But what kept Same Private Ryan at 15 was, uh, to an extent, the war context. One of the things that we kind of take into account when we're classifying something is audience expectation. Uh, you know, people who've listened to the podcast before might be aware of you know, talking about, you know, if you're going to see a Jason Bourne film, you're going to expect to see some crunchy punches and kicks and fist fights. Granted, Saving Private Ryan did take that further. It was you know, far more realistic. And Spielberg brings his, like, his full force as a filmmaker and his vision to really like, get his camera in there. The sound design and things is really striking as well. But we felt that it didn't fall foul of the, you know, the allowance at 15. Um, in that it was so grounded within this very specific historical context within the context of a war film, which, again, like war violence is quite different to, say, you know, knife crime on the streets or you know, domestic abuse in, you know, in a household context. There's an expectation of the type of you know, detail and things that you would see in a war film. So you mentioned the historical context, but did we take into consideration the educational benefit of the film in the classroom? Uh, sure. So that was something that yeah we definitely did kind of consider. You always have to like approach the idea of educational value with a slight bit of trepidation. In that, when we say something has educational value, we're not saying it's you know a hundred percent historically accurate or should be used like you know as a strict teaching tool. But we definitely think there is value to something which approaches either a certain sort of social issue or a event um, or period of history, which may have like benef benefits to discussing in, in the classroom or between kind of children and parents. Uh, and in the case of Saving Private Ryan, it's felt like that mid-teen category best suited the film because it was something that you know, teenagers who, again, like have grandparents who maybe fought in the war, coming off the back of all of this kind of 50th anniversary discussion of the war, uh, there was something that 
same Private Ryan could contribute to that discussion and further an interest uh, in World War II and perhaps learning about what these people went through and what the experience was like. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because despite there maybe being historical inaccuracies in the film, it's certainly more about the human experience and the way that it's filmed is so immersive that I actually think it's quite a good starting point to talk to your older teens about what the war was actually like and it has so many different people in it that you can see it was a collective experience as well and I think that's really important to share with kind of teens. Absolutely yeah and same Pratt Ryan you know it's one of those films where you know some people do criticize it for Spielberg's kind of love of sort of sentimentality I think it's such a he has such a humanist perspective on the war and uh, you know some films like you know Full Metal Jacket can be quite remote and kind of really bring out some of the kind of more sinister and brutal aspects. Whereas I think um, Saving Private Ryan has a way of kind of really humanising the soldiers and their experience and the just the horror and the, the fear and suffering and things that they went through, which can be a really kind of important learning experience for, for young people to kind of take away some of that kind of glamorised aspect of war as well. And, and since because of that, yes, although a few people were... Uh, maybe slightly shocked by the violence at the time. The vast majority of people seem to be in support of the 15. And because of that, same Private Ryan, even now, like over 20 years later, is still one of our main precedents for wartime violence. So whether we're getting something in like you know, episodes of Band of Brothers or The Pacific, or more recently, like uh, Hacksaw Ridge, the, the Mel Gibson World War II film, we use it as a kind of shorthand in our reports. And when we're kind of making category recommendations, we can say, Oh yes, the well, you know the violence in this is similar to that in Saving Private Ryan, or maybe not quite as strong as that in Saving Private Ryan. We can use that just as a shorthand to to back up our, our recommendations. So it's really set like a benchmark in terms of classification for war films after the nineties. Oh wow, that's really yeah. interesting. The thing about um, Saving Private Ryan as well is that it's really set a precedent for films that we see now, and one I can think of most recently well recently it was 2017 was Dunkirk this was directed by Christopher Nolan and it's all about the allied evacuation from northern France and it's actually split into three distinct sections so it's over air sea and land Um, and we kind of follow the soldiers in a very immersive way um, as they are stranded over a beach and can you tell me what we rated Dunkirk and how the decision was made and Maybe then we'll go into some more comparisons about how it's maybe similar or different to Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, so uh, the film was rated 12A, um, which is something which Christopher Nolan's been quite vocal about. Like That's the kind of the area he's most comfortable aiming his films at. He's ever since kind of Batman Begins, I think pretty much all of his films have been rated 12A since then. Um, and he's very much kind of is targeting his films for that kind of age group and or accessibility. And it makes a quite interesting decision for a war film to show almost no blood throughout the entire film. We see like maybe like a little bit of uh, bloodstained bandages on people on stretchers, but otherwise, in terms of combat, it's incredibly uh, restrained and doesn't really go into a lot of kind of the blood and guts and the injury that something like Saving Private Ryan does. But on the contrast, like although it's a war film, uh, Dunkirk plays out almost more like a horror or thriller film, where uh, the main issue is more threat than violence. Um, again, like uh, around the time that Dunkirk was uh, was coming out, uh, Christopher Nolan curated a uh, curated a, a season of films at the BFI, um, which had influenced uh, Dunkirk. 
and it included the Tony Scott runaway train film Unstoppable and Ridley Scott's Alien, uh, the horror film. And it's like these influences and things really come into play in the way that he depicts the experiences the soldiers are going through. So rather than showing like the horrors of war, it focuses more on like the desperation and the circumstances that they're in. So we see them kind of getting bombed and strafed by planes. We see them uh, on ships as they're sinking, caught in fires, oil spills. Uh, and just all these kind of very desperate situations on like how and how they're trying to escape. And right from like the very get-go of the film, like the tension just doesn't really let up for the whole running time. And our guidelines um, at 12 say that uh, there may be moderate physical and psychological threat, but although some scenes may be disturbing, the overall tone should not be. Yeah, I'm like quite concerned whether when there's you know sustained sequences of threat. Uh, in some cases, especially like when it's in a domestic context or targeted at children or you know, in certain supernatural horror films, it's this, you know, the degree of threat is something which takes something from 12 up to 15. Right. Uh, but again, in the case of Dunkirk, it was these same kind of mitigators that we applied to Saving Private Ryan that kind of came in to keep the film at the 12A level. The fact that this is depicting a very specific historical event, there is some you know, educational merit to the film in trying to like inform people about the experience and what you know what the soldiers went through at the time uh, as providing new information in that respect and it was felt that overall like the film could be defended at 12 but we were just like a little bit kind of like concerned about when people see it in the cinema in particular and with this like pounding Hans Zimmer soundtrack and the really intense sound effects of like the creaking metal and these ships as they're sinking the explosions the bullets ricocheting off things it might be quite an overwhelming experience for some people especially knowing you know the 12a allows for people at 11 10 years old and things that might be brought along uh, as well so we decided to kind of beef up the ratings info a little bit uh, so it went at 12a for sustained threat intense sequences moderate violence and strong language typically we would say infrequent strong language at 12 but there just wasn't room in the ratings info right took up too much space there yeah <laughs> that's interesting but i mean a lot of I think the the thing about this film is that a lot of people study Dunkirk and the the rescue missions and everything at school. So I think people can put it into kind of a historical context where the threat, whilst sustained and intense, doesn't have much application to them personally. Would you agree? And how does that kind of fall into this film? Um, so I think the film does quite a good job of trying to put you in the... You know, in the in the boots of the men on the ground and the people in these different experiences. And one of the things the, f- the film doesn't really have characters as such in the same way that Saving Private Ryan does. And the kind of what I was saying about the very kind of humanist kind of approach to to Saving Private Ryan and the you know the experiences of these people, and we learn a bit about their backstory and their relationships. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, in Dunkirk, the soldiers are more kind of ciphers in a way they don't go into a lot of their kind of personal characteristics. It's more just the situations that they're in. And I think in some degrees that that allows people today to imagine themselves in the same situations. And by having this strand of you know, land, sea and air, it captures such a wealth of different experiences, you know, different ages and occupations and things. We've got the civilians coming across in the boats, the pilots, the men on the ground. You know, we see some of the generals and admirals as well. Um, so I think it captures such a large ensemble of perspectives that there's different ways that people can see that and engage with it and try and learn how each different person played their role within that. 
Um, so talking about films like Dunkirk and Saving Private Ryan, how can parents use them to talk to their kids or teenagers about the war and its cultural impact? Um, well, some of what we've discussed, I think, you know, after watching the film, having a discussion, talking about, you know, whether they have personal connections to it, how they would feel in that same situation, how they think they would behave, what they think is the right and wrong thing to do, and also just trying to provide a bit more historical context. I think it should encourage people to, you know, maybe read around the subject and, you know, importantly, not take everything that they see in a film as writ. <laughs> um, know that, you know, all films, are, even documentaries and things, are susceptible to bias and, you know, these are like, dramatic works and artistic works rather than exact historiography so maybe kind of doing a little bit of research especially you know now when when people are inside and things maybe like you know use the internet use some books and and read around it a little bit and discuss it and find out some things about it a lot of um uh, special features and things which come with physical releases you know, also provide some extra information about the filmmaking process and you know, some of the difficulties or ideas and things that came behind that and also just look for contemporary relevance to a lot of these historical films like allegory is such a massive part of historical filmmaking you know whether it's trying to you know, like i mentioned earlier using world war ii as an allegory for vietnam or finding a film like Dunkirk, which I think has contemporary relevance now more than ever, even more so than in 2017 when it was made, in that through the particular the story of uh, the people going over in the small boats, you know, many of them were just you know civilians, you know, older men and young boys and things trying to go and help out. And I think that the message that Dunkirk, although for us as British people, like it holds a particular place in our kind of cultural and historical context and identity. I just think for you know audiences anywhere, the message of the film is really when people are in dire straits and facing hard times, it's great if we can just all pull together and help out. And yeah. I think that's like what the film's trying to get across. Yeah, so you can use it more to talk to your children about like the messaging behind the film about working together and um overcoming difficult situations so god it has so many different avenues there um do you have any book recommendations for anyone who maybe wants to read more about censorship and world war ii uh, well, there's obviously the, the BBFC book, which uh, we highly recommend. Um, <laughs> I've also just been reading uh, Britain Can Take It, British Cinema in the Second World War by Anthony Olgate and Geoffrey Richards. There's some interesting stuff in there and different uh, case studies of particular films. Oh, great. Well, worth checking out. So here's my final question. And this could open a big can of worms because it's a very broad question. But... What is your favourite war film and why? Yeah, war films are one of my absolute favourite genres, so it's so difficult picking one. I, I love seeing some of those older ones when you know when I was younger, like uh, Great Escape and Zulu, Bridge Too Far, uh, Pat, and all those kind of films. Um, I must say, like Saving Private Ryan and Dunkirk are two of my absolute favourites. I think they're both fantastic. Thin Red Line is an exceptional film uh, and makes a really interesting kind of counterbalance to uh, uh, to Saving Private Ryan. In terms of other conflicts as well, I think uh, Black Hawk Down is is a fantastic film and often misinterpreted. And Platoon and many of those Vietnam War films are incredibly emotive and interesting and, and really kind of tie you know, the events that they're depicting to kind of a fascinating period of history that I'm really interested in. So, I don't know, this is really tricky. <laughs> I think you've just covered about 10. 
I know, I know. I could go on for about three hours, but... but. Uh, well, we'll leave it at that. But yeah. thank you so much for joining me, Chris. It's been really great to talk to you. Thanks for sharing your knowledge oh. with us. That rounds up this podcast. We hope you enjoyed. For more information about any of the films we discussed today, please check out our website, bbfc.co.uk, or use our free app. And give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all the classification knowledge you need. Thanks for joining us. 